1: And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers Get It.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500-500. That's audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500-500.
2: Today's Sunday morning podcast is sponsored by Prudential. What would you do if you had
3: to choose between saving for your kids' college or your own retirement? With the cost of a four-year degree estimated to be over $200,000 in 18 years, it's a real decision many families must make. At Prudential, we want to make sure your biggest financial goals never have to come at the expense of one another. Because financial wellness means planning for their future and yours. Get started today at prudential.com slash plan for both. Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey.
4: I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. Tomorrow we celebrate President's Day, honoring all our nation's presidents, especially our very first, George Washington. We've all heard about Washington's long standing marriage to Martha Custis. Less well known are some other possible romantic exploits. Jim Axelrod will report our cover story.
5: He was the father of our country and the husband of Martha. But who remembers George Washington's first love? There's never any mention of Mary Phillips. Why has she been forgotten? And in her novel, author Mary Calvey imagines George Washington as you've never seen him.
6: He stroked the side of her face.
4: He felt her shiver.
5: Some revolutionary passion this President's Day weekend, ahead on Sunday morning.
4: Will the Oscar call for the envelope, please, bring Best Actress honors to Melissa McCarthy? If so, she'll be reaping the rewards of playing against type, as Lee Cowan will show us.
1: You are gonna pay me $5,000. I don't know what you're talking about.
7: We're not used to seeing Melissa McCarthy playing an alcoholic, petty criminal, but, she says, this is as rewarding a role as she's ever
1: had. I do love the underdog, and I love showing those undervalued people and those women that we don't give always full credit. I love to show them at the end in a very different place. The
7: The funny thing about Melissa McCarthy's not-so-funny side, uh, later on Sunday morning.
4: On the heels of President Trump's wall declaration, Jeff Glor explores our southern border with author Don Winslow. Steve Hartman finds a quiet sign of the times. We'll take in the exhibit that forever changed our definition of art. And more, all coming up when our Sunday Morning Podcast continues. We're fairly sure on this President's Day Eve that the story of a young George Washington chopping down a cherry tree is a myth, which brings us to this morning's mystery. Did George Washington love Mary Phillips? Our cover story is reported by Jim Axelrod.
5: When it comes to the familiar portrait of the father of our country, the model of virtue and resolve who could not tell a lie.
6: He stroked the side of her face. He felt her shiver.
5: Maybe, just maybe, we didn't get the whole picture.
6: He felt her relax in his arms.
5: It turns out, a few years before Martha...
6: Mary Eliza Phillips, my fond heart overflows with joy to see you. She smiled and her lips trembled.
5: There was Mary. This is a massive amount of land that Mary owns. Her
6: family owned a quarter million acres of land all along the Hudson River.
5: In her debut novel, Dear George, Dear Mary, author Mary Calvey writes of Washington's first love, Mary Eliza Phillips, one of the wealthiest women in the colonies. What do we learn? Couldn't tell a lie. Cross the Delaware Martha. There's never any mention of Mary Phillips.
6: Why is that? Why has she been forgotten? In the 1800s, she's written in every book there is that I could find about George Washington, and yet since then, I feel like she's sort of been left out. history.
5: Calvi wants to put her back with a love story that begins in 1756 as the newly minted French and Indian war hero Colonel George Washington is passing through New York. He stops for a party in his honor, possibly at Phillips Manor, a mansion in Yonkers. When he meets the heiress who lives there, sparks fly. Was George Washington sexy?
6: George Washington was a stud back in the 1700s. Are you kidding? Women wanted a touch of him is what was said.
5: But Washington's sense of duty to the King of England trumped Cupid. If this guy has fallen for this heiress, why doesn't he make plans to take some leave, go check on this potential love of your life? George Washington requests time off 10 days, 12 days,
6: 14 days. And he writes to his commanders. He's denied every time.
5: When Mary married a British officer, Roger Morris, two years later, Washington quit his command. Perhaps, according to Mary Calvey, changing the course of history.
6: They really took away his freedoms to be able to follow his heart.
5: It's a story that has long fascinated Calvey, who, like Mary Phillips, grew up in Yonkers and where she's the first lady, married to the mayor, Mike Spano.
6: When my husband was inaugurated as mayor, I asked the question, isn't it true that George Washington once courted the heiress who lived here? It was urban legend. And when we couldn't find the answers and substantiate that story, I said, well, let me try to research it on my own.
5: For three and a half years, Calvi sorted through thousands of letters, publications, and journal entries. This is CBS 2 News. In her spare time, since she already had a day job. Calvi is an anchor at the CBS station in New York City.
6: This is not what I do for a living. So I had all of the research done, and I thought, well, let me just give it a shot.
5: She wanted her work of fiction backed up by as many facts as she could find, though she didn't always like where those facts took her. This is
6: exactly the room.
5: Like to this mansion in Harlem. In 1776, 20 years after George and Mary's relationship failed to blossom, Washington, outmanned and under-resourced, was fighting to keep the British from capturing Manhattan. The mansion, perched on the highest point in the city, made a perfect headquarters.
6: You'd see the New York Harbor, you'll see the Harlem River, you'll see Hudson River. And so if you were looking for the enemy, you would see them coming from here.
5: And the mansion was owned by none other than Mary Phillips. Where was Mary Phillips when George Washington decided to move in?
6: So that's such a good question. That's what I went into the documents to try to figure out.
5: Things were getting even more complicated for both Mary's, Phillips and Calvi. The author knew that Martha Washington was back in Virginia for her own safety and that Phillips' husband was in England. No one knows for sure where Mary Phillips was, but Calvi had an idea.
6: She wasn't upstate with her sister, and she wasn't in Yonkers with her brother. So it is possible that George Washington moved into a mansion in Harlem in which his first love was living in at the time.
5: Hang on. George Washington is here, living in a bedroom down the hall, using this as his office at the same time that his first love may very well be living in this house?
6: I know what you're saying, and I know what you're thinking, and that's what I could see
5: in the documents. You really could see, if if you were here, this makes a lot of sense as headquarters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Historian Richard Brookhiser, one of the world's preeminent George Washington scholars, confirms George and Mary Phillips were an item in 1756, but says while historical fiction is one thing, is it possible they shared this house? We don't have any evidence of it. Historical fact or it is quite another. I think she's found a possibility for a good work of fiction. Until we find some letter, Dear Mary, you know, so nice to see you after so many decades, it's not going to enter the historical record. Not saying it didn't happen, just saying we can't say it did happen. There are rigorous standards for something to enter the historical record. That's right. And this doesn't get over that bar. Not yet. We can still look. Still, as we mark the 287th birthday of George Washington, Mary Calvey has a story that seeks to liberate the historical figure from the marble that so often encases his legacy. You look almost pained to say that.
6: I was so torn when I found this information out. I was really in a bit of a quandary, truthfully, as to what to do with this because, information.
5: Because you didn't want to be the one suggesting <laughs> no, that George Washington, the father of our country, was carrying on?
6: Well, because I'm the first one to say it, there's something really uncomfortable about that for me. Night turned to dawn. She had fallen asleep in his arms. The last small flame was burning out in the hearth he walked over to the fireplace, placed white birch logs into it, and waited to be assured the glow did not go dark.
4: President Trump has touched off a heated debate with his national emergency to fund a border wall. A certain best-selling author has long been committing his border knowledge to fine print. He shares his thoughts with CBS Evening News anchor, Jeff Glore.
8: So tell me where we are. You're in the big nowhere. The heat in the windy Southern California desert, it's 109 right now, is searingly familiar to Don Winslow. Mexico's just across those hills.
9: And these are drug trails coming up out of Mexico
8: by foot, mule, horse, all-terrain vehicles they usually come at night. The drug trails almost look like snake tracks. They do. That's how you know what they are. WINSLOW, now 65, and a best-selling author, has spent a third of his life at our southern border, writing two critically acclaimed novels based on what he's seen. After more than two decades, he thought he'd exhausted the topic.
9: I swore, I, I promised to myself, I promised to my wife, I wasn't going to do another one about the border, about drugs.
8: But there was more story to be told. He tells that story in The Border out later this month. His crime trilogy will soon be made into big-budget movies by acclaimed director Ridley Scott. It's about
9: internal borders, about ethical borders, moral borders, political borders, and whether we cross them or not. And if we cross them, can we ever cross back?
8: Winslow's been a fierce critic of President Trump. He even took out a full-page ad in The New York Times criticizing his border policies.
9: We want to stop drugs. We want to stop traffickers. We want to stop criminals from coming in. Walls save lives.
8: Do you imagine seeing a wall out there someday? (laughs) No. (laughs) I've
9: been on every mile of this border, every mile.
8: Let's go to cloud cuckoo land for
9: a while and say you could build that wall. Build it as high as you want, deep as you want, wide as
8: you want. It has gates, Jeff. Those gates are always open. Winslow believes a wall would make the drug situation worse by driving small-time smugglers into the hands of big-time dealers What we
9: critically have to understand is that a border is also something that joins two
8: communities two countries and two cultures You think we forget that sometimes? We've completely forgotten it What is it that people don't understand about what's happening there right now? There is no invasion
9: of the United States through this border. These are not armed people. These are people, for the most part, hardworking family people trying to find a better life, something we used to welcome in this country. Are there bad people in these caravans? Are there some criminals? Of course. I would also argue to you there were bad people on the Mayflower. There were bad people who came into Ellis Island. But that's what built this country.
8: Don Winslow didn't expect to be spending his 60s speaking his mind about politics. With 21 novels to his name, he is now one of the most in-demand crime writers in America. But for many years, it wasn't that way.
9: You're the late bloomer. Yeah. Overnight success, but it was an Arctic night. you know. <laughs> it's the job I've, I've always wanted, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful now that I have it. You know, it took the world a long time to agree with me that you know, I should be a writer. But he knew from the beginning. I was about six or seven years old. Six or seven? Yeah. My dad was a sailor who loved books. That's what he wanted to do, float around on the water and read books. My mother was a librarian. We were always encouraged to read. We were always allowed to read anything we wanted. And I thought, you know, if I could make my living telling stories, that's the way I'd like my life to go.
8: Winslow published his first book in 1991, he sold just enough to pay the bills, but kept at it. There have been multiple times, I think, when you've thought about packing it in. Yeah. Giving up. Yeah. And so what is it that gets you through that you're just just continuing to work? Yeah, write a new book. Stop complaining, stop thinking, just work. That's it. That's always it. It's, it's four miles. Finally, four straight. years ago, right Winslow through, hit the big time exactly with the blockbuster international bestseller, The Six Cartel. Markers, you don't share this much.
9: Never shared it with anybody before you.
8: It's this view, he says, in the hills east of San Diego, that gives him his inspiration. It's a lot of times where I come to think, where I come to create characters. Characters like those in his 2017 bestseller, The Force.
1: Author Don Winslow.
8: A raw and profane tale of an anti-hero cop in New York City. 4 a.m., WHEN THE CITY THAT NEVER SLEEPS AT LEAST LIES DOWN. THE NOVEL IS SET IN UPPER MANHATTAN, WHERE WINSLOW ONCE WORKED AS A PRIVATE INVESTIGATOR. IT DESCRIBES A HEROIN MILL RUN OUT OF AN APARTMENT COMPLEX.
9: THIS AREA WORKS BECAUSE OF ITS LOCATION. YOU'RE VERY NEAR SEVERAL MAJOR HIGHWAYS.
8: REMARKABLY, JUST BEFORE THE BOOK WAS PUBLISHED, A REAL-LIFE HEROIN MILL WAS UNCOVERED IN THE VERY BUILDING WINSLOW USED TO BASE HIS FICTIONAL BUILDING.
9: Reading the newspaper, and bam, there was a major heroin bust, I think 22
8: pounds, uh, right here. Coincidence? Maybe. More likely the product of Winslow's meticulous research. A team of one, he spends years digging for details. This was the gas station office. Writing 12 hours a day in an old converted gas station near his California home.
9: You're addicted to it. I think addiction might be the accurate phrase. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's an addiction, and I love doing it.
8: A love and a passion that's given Don Winslow a platform
9: to speak his mind. <laughs> I'm not interested in apologizing. I'm not interested in regrets. But I'm not saying I'm sorry about anything I've written or anything I've said.
1: Well, I guess this is the Awkward moment portion of the evening. Yep, a looming question.
2: Who gets the
1: leftovers?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley.
4: Melissa McCarthy showed off her comic skills opposite Billy Gardell in the popular CBS sitcom Mike and Molly. So it would be quite a turnaround if next Sunday's Call for the Envelope Please brings McCarthy and Oscar for a very different sort of role. Here's Lee Cowan.
7: At the Iliad Bookshop in North Hollywood, California, you can find just about anything. Including, on this day, actress Melissa McCarthy. Hey,
1: Jacob,
7: thanks so much. Thank you. See you soon. She was buying actual books with actual pages. Tablets just aren't her thing.
1: Every weekend we try to go to a bookstore. It's the one really? thing, yeah. It's the one store, my husband's really good about it. I don't know, I need a. I need a real book. I need a tangible book. Bye, thank you. Sure
7: thing, thank you. Books are great, but she enjoys studying people even more. I read somewhere that you, you have a real obsession with observing people who really just don't care. They don't care what they look like, they don't them. care what they say, they don't care what they eat, drink, whatever. It's almost like a hobby for you watching. It is people.
1: a hobby, and it's gotten harder since I'm a little, since this is a little more recognizable. My husband many times has been like, you have to, you cannot follow people. Oh. <laughs> like you're, you're not, and now you get caught more.
7: And would some of those characters that you would stalk, <laughs> would, they it, would they make admire. it? make admire. <laughs> Would they make it into some of your other characters, like parts yeah, of them? I
1: think I think when I really see like a a mannerism or a just a way somebody carries themselves, I really I tend to keep like playing it over and over. <laughs> Jesus, Megan, I'm sorry. I want to apologize. I'm not even confident of which end that came out of. Whitney, back to you. I'm sorry.
7: McCarthy's characters, <laughs> as cringeworthy as they are lovable
1: are her collection
7: of the bits and pieces of people she's gathered along the way.
1: You know, I get it. You know, you get a little, a little taste of Tammy, and you kind of come clamoring back for more.
7: But for all her outrageous hilarity. Before we begin, I know that myself
1: and the press
3: have gotten off to a rocky start.
7: I'm McCarthy is capable. Of some Oscar-worthy subtlety, the
1: too. Come
7: on, man. A skill she shows off in her latest performance you know, you in Can You
1: so Ever Forgive Me? You've actually carried my books here.
10: And you are? Lee Israel. Oh, we have copies of your latest work right over there.
1: McCarthy is up for an
7: Academy Award for her portrayal of Lee Israel, the true story of a caustic, best-selling biographer who, in her later years, typed her way into a life of petty crime.
1: I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. Within the first 15 pages of the script, I just thought, oh, I like her quite a bit. I'm not sure why. And I thought, I don't know what I'm fully rooting for her already.
7: The real-life Lee Israel made a name for herself writing profiles of celebrities, including actress Tula Bankhead and gossip columnist Dorothy Kilgallen. But when her biography of makeup mogul Estee Lauder flopped, Israel found herself on welfare and began fabricating letters, typed correspondence from celebrities like Louise Brooks, Edna Ferber, and Noel Coward, and then scammed New York City booksellers into buying them as the genuine article.
1: These are wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price.
7: How many of her letters do you think are still out there? I
1: don't know, but God, I'd love to know. I think there's quite a bit of them hanging, hanging on people's walls. Proudly. Proudly. And now maybe even strangely, it's like... It could make them even a little better. It's like a <laughs> story true. within a story. Yeah, you know? exactly. Affectionately, Lillian Helm, Edna Ferber. Dorothy oh, Parker. God. Judy Holliday. Louise Brooks, Highest regards. Marlena Sincerely Dietrich. Surely yours, Noel
7: Coward. Over the course of three years, Israel carefully crafted more than 400 fakes, making her one of the most prolific literary forgers in history.
10: You're impersonating other people. I mean, very well, I'm sure, but come on. Nobody's buying Lee Israel letters.
7: She did do some damage to the literary community, even though she didn't see it that way.
1: No, she didn't, and I guess I don't, but I'm, I mean, I'm clearly on her side. She grifted people. There's, I'm not saying that it, it's okay what she did. It's the gentlest grift I've ever heard of that people got conned, and I, I don't take that lightly, but also she she was in absolute desperation
7: You'd never know it from her writing though, which was desperately good. Take this letter, Israel claimed, was written by satirist Dorothy Parker.
1: Dear Joshua, Alan told me to write and apologize. I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. I'm sure I must have said something terrible. To save me this kind of exertion in the future, I am thinking of having little letters run off saying, can you ever forgive me, Dorothy? But until I do that, Can you ever forgive me, Dorothy?
7: She was such a talented writer.
1: Such an incredible writer. And so witty. I mean, she was conjuring these lines and these incredibly funny replies, and she was really, really good. And so was
7: McCarthy's performance, if you go by the award recognition. In addition to her Oscar nod, she was also nominated for a SAG, a BAFTA, and a Golden Globe, all for a pretty dark role that some see as far different from her comedic bread and butter.
1: There's no difference for me in preparation of if it's, you know, on paper a a comedic role or a dramatic role. I I still think you build them the same way. And even with all the comedies I've done, I spend more time thinking about what makes them scared or when they feel vulnerable than I ever do about, like, what makes them funny.
7: In fact, in the 90s, after a stint of doing stand-up in New York City clubs,
1: McCarthy actually found drama a refuge. I really did all uh, dramatic work on stage in New York for years and years, way off-Broadway. You said some of them were pretty grim. They were pretty grim. I mean, the theaters? (laughs) Oh yeah, it was like- Or even the plays uh, themselves. Oh, they were all, it was like the darker, the more macabre I could do, the more I just loved it. I mean, the interest was and is always someone who's much further from myself.
7: Lee Israel is light years away from the Midwest nice of McCarthy. She was an alcoholic, big city porcupine who died largely alone in 2014 after finally writing her own memoir, outlining the gritty details of her literary larceny. But at the end of the day, you read the book and it, she's not contrite really about what she did. She actually seems no. like she's kind of bragging about it.
1: She's, she's, she never ever took back the writing was good. Someone just recently sent me a letter that she'd written, and she mentions this, I've gotten myself into a bit of trouble with some writing. And then there's some line after it basically saying, however, the writing was good and the letters are great. This uh, one line here was particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion.
7: McCarthy doesn't excuse Israel's crimes, but she hopes the movie might serve as a reminder that there is talent in all of us. Even those who are unlikable, maybe even criminal, want what we all do,
1: to be seen. I just want people to look up and, and notice people. I feel like we're so separate now, and I do think all the time, like, look up. anyone You don't know who's passing you. You could be passing Lee Israel, who is sure going to be more interesting and smarter and funnier than than the average than the average person. So don't like don't underestimate people.
4: From Steve Hartman this morning, a sign of the times.
10: At the far end of Islington Road in Newton, Massachusetts, lives a little girl near and dear to the neighborhood. Two-year-old Samantha Savitz is deaf, but boy, does she love to talk to anyone who knows sign language. Her parents, Raphael and Glenda.
1: Yeah, she's super engaging. She wants to, you know, chat
10: up with anybody.
3: Yeah, her whole personality changes when it's someone who can communicate with her.
10: Likewise, if someone can't, well, that makes Sam just a little sad. Her desire for engagement has been painfully obvious to everyone in the neighborhood. Whenever they see her on a walker in her yard, and Sam tries to be neighborly, they find themselves at a frustrating loss for words.
2: I didn't know what to say back. Wouldn't you like to talk to her?
6: You know, basic conversation that one would have with a child.
2: Asking her about her day.
6: And make her feel that she is part of the
3: neighborhood. Just be her friend.
10: Unfortunately, this isn't something you can solve with a casserole. You'd need the whole community to learn sign language, just for a little two-year-old girl can't expect neighbors to do that you can only appreciate them when they do on their own sam's neighbors got together hired an instructor and are now fully immersed in an american sign language class the teacher reese mcgovern says this is remarkable because a lot of times even the parents of deaf children don't bother to learn sign language
2: But here, Sam has a full community that's signing and communicating with her and her family, and it is a beautiful story.
10: And he says this level of inclusion will almost certainly guarantee a happier, more well-adjusted Sam, which is why her parents say there aren't words in any language to express their gratitude. It's, yeah,
3: it's it's really shocking and beautiful.
10: We
7: are so so fortunate.
10: fortunate. In fact, They say they're already seeing a difference in their daughter. You should see her when she comes in at the end of class.
2: The first thing she says to us is, friend, I think your heart would melt just as mine did.
10: Sometimes it feels like America is losing its sense of community. But then you hear about a place like this, where the village it takes to raise a child is alive and well, and here to remind us that what makes a good neighborhood is nothing more
4: than good (laughs) Roses are red, violets are blue, but for a real fashion statement, Faith Saley tells us to think pink. Consider pink, the color of
3: flowers, ballet shoes, and candy hearts.
2: So how do you explain this? Pink is the most divisive color in American society. People either love pink or they hate it. Valerie Steele curated a recent exhibition about the shade at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. How can anyone object to pink? Well, because people object to the stereotypes. Pink gets these associations of dumb, immature girls. Then a lot of girls and women go, that's not me. But, Steele says, pink entered the world gender-free and has led quite a colorful life. People want to believe very simple stories about color. And in fact, like culture in general, it's more complicated.
3: In the 18th century, an expensive South American dye made pink
2: fabric chic. Paris was the center of fashion, and so pink became the ultra-fashionable color. Men wore it, women wore it, boys, girls wore it, interiors were pink. So it wasn't about gender. It was about class. It was about being fashionable and aristocratic. Just after the Civil War, pink
3: hit mainstream America. In the novel Little Women, one of the characters
2: has twins, a girl and a boy. Amy put a blue ribbon on the boy and a pink on the girl. French fashion, so you could always tell. By the 1840s, the French had decided pink was for girls or women and blue was for boys. The Americans decided that you could really make money out of color-coding children's clothes. But first, there was confusion.
3: Many stores in America thought pink was for boys. And the other half go, oh, no, 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 no,
2: no. Pink is for girls and blue is for boys. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. Pink is for girls.
3: The dye, shall we say, was cast. Businesses started seeing green once pink was linked with notions of sugar and spice and everything nice.
11: There's a lot of inertia in an association like that. Once it's established, it's tough for it to change.
3: But decades later, a little girl bounded on the scene who shook up pink's sweet image. I am
2: Eloise. I am six.
11: I think she basically owned a version of pink and said, pink can also be mischievous. It can be a little bit more playful.
2: Adam
3: Alter teaches marketing at NYU Stern School of Business.
11: That was a really good thing for the color pink. It gave it this extra dimension and meant that pink didn't just mean being very well-behaved and doing exactly the right thing all the time. It also meant being yourself and being the real version of who you are.
9: When we started the book, the concept of the background color was never planned. This will empower
5: little girls, but it did.
3: Hillary Knight created the illustrations for the book Eloise. He decided she'd be only black, white, and bathed in bright pink. The book became a sensation.
9: Life Magazine published six pages directly from the book. It was on the bestseller list.
3: Pink, pink, think pink when you shop for summer clothes. And its author, Kay Thompson, became a movie star, playing a fashion editor with a rosy idea.
4: Think pink! Forget that Dior says black and rust.
9: Everybody knew about Eloise and the color pink. It is why she is saying pink.
3: But 1950s America had a less spirited message to spread.
2: Pink became a part of the whole sort of feminine mystique, push women back in the home and get them to do feminine things.
3: And so began pink's, well, dark period. While some of the gentler sex embraced pink, some 60s feminists saw
2: red. So when the little girls wanna buy all the pink toys, a lot of mothers go, mm, I don't really like that kind of bubblegum Barbie thing. I don't want my daughter to just buy into that. That is, until recently.
3: Whoever said orange is the new
2: pink was seriously disturbed.
3: As filmmakers began to celebrate the shades smarts, Do you have a resume. Here it is. It's pink. Oh, and it's scented. I think it gives it a little something extra, don't you think?
2: And it's sass.
3: We want to invite you to have lunch with us on Wednesdays. We wear pink.
2: They're emphasizing their girls and their girls empowered,
3: especially girls and women with a cause. The pink ribbon brought awareness to breast cancer, and
2: other groups saw its power. A lot of activist movements have embraced pink as a political color for women. When you saw all of those pink pussy hats, you realized if you want to be noticed, wear pink.
3: And, Valerie Steele says, that leaves everyone in the pink.
2: Over the last 20 years, different genders, sexualities, and races have gotten together and said, pink doesn't have to be childish and feminine. Pink can be powerful, androgynous, political, cool. It's kind of a dream color.
4: Now, thoughts on President Trump's declaration of a national emergency. From Norman Ornstein, political scientist, at the American Enterprise Institute. So, we're going to be signing today
9: and registering national emergency.
11: In a rambling announcement on Friday, President Trump said that despite signing the compromise funding bill, he would still declare a state of emergency to build his border wall. A president invoking emergency powers is not new. Over the past hundred years, presidents have done so dozens of times, from FDR to prevent a run on banks, to George W. Bush allowing warrantless wiretaps after 9-11, to Obama on the swine flu epidemic. Thirty still remain technically in effect. Even where presidents overreached, like Harry Truman, slapped down by the Supreme Court after seizing steel mills during the Korean War, they had valid laws to rely on and urgent reasons to act. This is different. In his Answers Friday to reporters' questions, Trump gave away the game.
5: I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this,
11: but I'd rather do it much faster. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this. But I would rather do it much faster. This is not trivial. If the president can succeed with this voluntary state of emergency, he is setting the table for something much more dangerous. Emergency powers are sweeping. A president may seize property, institute martial law, control all transportation and communication, and much more. All these emergency powers are there under an assumption that a president puts the nation's interests first, respects the other branches of government, and the rule of law. What if we have a president who does not fit that description? There are guardrails in place. Congress can pass a joint resolution erasing an emergency declaration that will no doubt be vetoed by President Trump. And to override that veto will take at least a third of Republicans who have shown no interest in checking this president. Then we have the judiciary. Trump says he expects the Supreme Court to rescue him. If the five Republican-appointed justices uphold this order, they're saying in effect that presidential power is unlimited. There is no Article 1 of the Constitution establishing the powers of Congress, making Congress meaningless. Pay attention. Our fundamental freedoms could be at stake.
4: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like
0: CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app